this month on the Voices of Experience podcast. It's not development first, community second. It's community first, development second. And I think if that's the mentality that a neighborhood has, it's, it's really good. With a lifetime spent in real estate and development, East West Partners CEO Chris Frampton has seen it and built it all. In Denver, his company is most well known for its Union Station and Riverfront Park builds, as well as the ongoing Cherry Creek West project. Despite the magnitude of those efforts, Frampton is unwilling to relent on one thing in particular. One of our values is no corner cutting, and, and we really mean that. Frampton joined to discuss the path that led him to a top Denver-based developer, his thoughts on the current state of the city, and what the future of development may hold. All on the Voices of Experience podcast, an extension of the Signature Speaker Series at the Daniels College of Business. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Instead of a traditional introduction, I'd love to get a snapshot of your career by looking at it through the guiding business principle that you called out on your professional bio. Do you remember what that is? No, no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's to find a solution. Yeah, fair. How throughout your career have you lived that principle and how does it lead you to your current role? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure lots of um, businesses are like this, but real estate development in particular is about solutions. Um, especially when you work in places like East West does where there's lots of interest in the projects that we're doing. So in Denver, that's Union Station. People are super fascinated about what we were going to build. Mm -hmm. um, in downtown Charleston, where we're um, working on a uh, historic renovation, or if that's in ski resorts like in Snowmass, um, we have really involved and engaged communities and really involved and engaged municipalities. And then we um, also do really big projects that cost a lot of money. And so when you put those three components together, mm -hmm. there are lots of opinions about what you should do. And so our job as a developer, and I think this is something I've just learned over the course of my career, is to really figure out solutions that can generally appease all of those groups. Sure. Uh, impossible um, to, to have everybody be perfectly happy. Mm -hmm. There is no perfect road. There is no perfect sidewalk. There is no perfect office floor plate. Um, but there are solutions that are um, um, really good for everybody at the end of the day. And as a developer, one of the great things about the job is we actually do decide what that ultimate answer is, hopefully. Mm -hmm. So um, I would say, course of my career, you know, a few examples of that. Um, a great example, actually, is when I first started in real estate sales. So I had been an investment banker uh, in New York and uh, realized I didn't want to do that. And my dad, who's a huge influence in my life and career, suggested, hey, you need to eat what you kill. And so I had to go and learn how to sell real estate. And we were selling out of six double wides on a golf course that was to be built 30 miles north of Austin, Texas. So um, definitely a different product than what I'd been dealing with in New York City. Yeah. But I had to learn how to um, talk with a customer about why it would be a fit for them. Why Why does this couple who's spent their entire lives being filmmakers slash doll traders, true story, <laughs> want to buy a condominium, or excuse me, want to buy a lot on a golf course community in Georgetown, Texas. And so um, that's a bit of a kind of a solution. And I think it's, a, um, it's something I, I think about all day, every day. We're, we're trying to find a solution to a problem or an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Great. And forgive me for putting you on the spot there with uh, the website fine. bio. Yeah. <laughs> I, the website bio is um, uh, left over. And, <laughs> and um, I've actually really moved to just very short. This is my job. Yeah. These are my wife and kids and yeah. dog. And, yeah. Uh, well, great. You mentioned some of the work you've done, and, and I want to hit on that a little more. 
from the mountains of Steamboat to the beaches of Hawaii and even a crepe shop in the village at Snowmass, East West clearly takes on a variety of different projects. What is one thing you're unwilling to relent on when it comes to your work? Um, there are a few things that I'm unwilling, but I really think I'm just a representative of the company. There are a few things that we're just not willing to relent on. Uh, one of those is quality. We just aren't. Um, so it, one of our values is no corner cutting, and, and we really mean that. We didn't do the crepe shop, by the way. It's this amazing woman, Mawa, and she does an amazing incredible job making crepes and has lines of a hundred <laughs> people to get crepes in the morning before skiing. But no, we don't, we don't sacrifice quality. We don't, we don't cut corners. Um, and then for East West partners, our, our goal in every project we do is to create a terrific place. And so we don't want to sacrifice those qualities of, of place. We think that's um, distinct to our work. Um, we think it is things that lots of developers think about. We're not the only ones, um, but for us, it's an absolute Great. You recently passed your 20-year anniversary at East West Partners. I'm old. <laughs> that wasn't my intent. <laughs> How have you seen development change over the last two decades? What was once popular that now has been phased out of projects? I, I don't really think things have changed that much. And, and um, I, I honestly think, pretty interestingly, I don't think things have changed that much since the beginning of time. I mean, we, we come together in cities um, along big transportation routes, and, and, and people want to be together in communal spaces. You know, if anything's changed in the last 20 years, it's the way we focus on walkability. And that's um, that's really shown out post-COVID and, and particularly today, say, for example, in the office market where walkable areas have incredible value. And in residential, it's even more important. But I am always remembered. I always remember Charles Frazier, who was the one of the great developers of all time. My dad worked for him, but so did a myriad Trammell Crow, uh, Ron Twilliger from Trammell Crow Residential and Leonard Wood from Wood Partners. And the list is really long. Mark Smith. So the list is really long of people who worked with him. And if you go back to his projects um, at Harbortown, they were copying Portofino in Italy for the walkability. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a communi- community garden. They had an incredible focus on trails and bikes and kids. Um, they So they were really focused on a lot of the things that we're focused on. They were focused on connection to nature. Mm. So a lot of things that we think about today are aren't, aren't that aren't, – we, we tend to think we're really creative <laughs> and we're probably not. Speaking of walkability, I want to talk about uh, a current project on your docket. Sure. When it comes to Cherry Creek West, you are prioritizing people first by creating a walkable and bikeable plan. What will make this the pedestrian paradise that you're envisioning? It's interesting because um, it's so easy to say we're going to make it walkable and pedestrian friendly. And then as we get into the design process and the rezone, everything that the team has to go through, we find out that everybody has a different definition of what pedestrian first means. Mm. Um, so I would say we've been struggling to figure it out. It's a little bit about finding that solution we were talking about before. Um, we have the large development review process here in Denver. And so the city of Denver has a lot of input into what our project might look like. We're partners with the owners of the mall at Taubman and, and preservation of that mall is important to everybody. Uh, number one tourist destination, in the city of Denver and, and a huge retail tax base and just a place people like to go. And so trying to figure out how to balance getting cars in and out, loading, and then moving people through and having people be first and foremost, and then being honest about where the site is. And so um, I will say this, and I, I really do mean it. The first lens that we look at every decision is through what will it be like to move through the space as a pedestrian. And so we try to stay there. Um, because the truth is we got to do things with cars. They got to go somewhere. We can't make everything a wound earth. We'd like to make as many things as possible a wound earth, but 
um, not always easy to do. Mm. So, uh, but it is that lens, that lens first and foremost. And I, and honestly, that seems to have resonated with the community groups that we've worked with. It obviously resonates with the city and county of Denver. So, so far, so good. I want to continue down this thread and, and bring a little data into the discussion. Uh, during the pandemic, visitors to downtown areas across the country, including in Denver, took a nosedive. Uh, a report from the Downtown Denver Partnership, which we'll be sure to link in our show notes, found that an average of nearly 50,000 people were visiting the city in April 2020, down more than 200,000 people from the year before. Those numbers have since rebounded, with a recent report showing numbers hovering around 200,000 downtown visitors this summer. With that bounce back in mind, how does East West Partners think about creating and encouraging a return to community in its projects? You know, it's an interesting question. I think there are two two things to say. I, I, I would first say, look, nothing changed in the last three years, but we're still focused on walkability. We always will be. I mean, Jane Jacobs said there's two kinds of people, those who like to walk and those who don't. We're interested in the 50%, well, I think it's more than that, that want to walk. <laughs> and so that that that's going to be a focus for us for forever. I, I think COVID and its impacts on, on cities can be misunderstood. Mm. It it's, fa- it's fascinating to me how quickly all of our memories, our collective memories, disappear. And um, one example of this is that I, sometime, I can't even remember when COVID started, sometime in 2020, spring. Right. But I remember a moment where I was in my car driving around, convinced zombies were going to come out from everywhere, went to a gas station, put gloves on to fill up the gas. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that moment we were shut down. And so to look at cities and say, look, they don't work when we were shut down mm-hmm. doesn't really make any sense. Now, that cities happen to be a place where lots of folks gather. So this is not 20 houses on the end of a cul-de-sac. Cities have lots and lots of people. There's a number of those people who cannot lock down, whether that's because they don't have a home or because they have some other prevailing challenge that, that they're facing, mental, mental health, obvious one, drug use, another. So I think cities felt empty because cities are supposed to have people in them. That's what they are. And when they don't, they don't feel all that great. And I want to belabor this because I'm, I'm kind of fascinated about it. It's really fun to say, you know, have you seen the hellhole that is New York City? Mm. And I'm like, well, you obviously haven't been there. I mean, my brother lives in Brooklyn, would send me pictures throughout the pandemic of folks sitting out on the decks and enjoying a Negroni and the, the new um, patios built out into the streets. And he was like, this is the most delightful place I've, I've ever been. Can we, can we stay like this? <laughs> right. And if you go back to New York, which I've been fortunate enough to do over the last six months, and I'll be there in a few weeks, New York is rocking. Mm-hmm. And it's back to, if not, it, it's sort of like people realized how great their streets are and yeah. they, they've kind of forgotten. Yeah. So, I, you know, look, cities, certainly the pandemic probably almost certainly impacted cities. You could probably argue education, but argued cities in, in a bigger way than just about anything else. Um, and there have been challenges, but I think to the city of Denver's credit, they've been on them. Um, they have been extremely focused at the highest levels in the city. And, um, you know, we don't always love every answer, but like I said, not everybody's going to get the perfect, perfect answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, our next question here, Denver has received scrutiny in the recent past for the gentrification of the city with a 2020 report from the National Community Reinvestment Coalition ranking the city second behind only San Francisco for most gentrified in the country. Uh, be sure to check our show notes for that complete ranking. How do you balance new development without displacing the current inhabitants? Yeah, I think it's really hard. I, we, we've kind of cheated at East West by developing places where 
they happened to be urban, but there wasn't anybody. So Riverfront Park, Union Station, where empty pieces of land, Cherry Creek West is essentially an an empty piece of land. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's a really compelling challenge. You know, I I suspect it is a combination of neighborhood groups um, and city leadership in any city where everybody is able to weigh in on the impacts and changes to a place um, and that that's done early. Um, I'm on the ULI uh, Prize for Innovation jury, and this year we awarded that prize to Jeannie Gang from Studio Gang. And Studio Gang has this amazing process that they run, and it'd be interesting to link to in your show notes, you can find it on our website, where they um, actually do work with a community about designing that community without ever building another building Mm. and improving it without ever building another building. And that's a great process because it's community created it's shown that over time they do get some improvement in the built infrastructure, uh, which is great. Um, but it's not development first, community second. It's community first, development second. And I think if that's the mentality that a neighborhood has, it's, it's really good. But look, it's a hard problem. If, if a neighborhood has great location, water and sewer already built in, tree-lined streets, and relatively affordable houses, that's a, that's, people are going to buy them mm-hmm. and people are going to sell them. So – it's a problem that will never go away, and I think sensitivity to it is is always important. Great. Uh, in 2013, amid development of the downtown corridor, you said Union Station is a, quote, game changer for the city. In the last year, that area has received a lot of negative coverage for crime and drug activity, with a local transit union leader calling the Union Station bus concourse a lawless hellhole at the end of 2021. How does Union Station rehab its image and return to the tourist attraction and transportation hub it was intended to be? Um, it's pretty close already. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Union Station is a really interesting example of, of something that um, East-West focuses on a lot. I, other companies do, t- do too. Developers do too. Municipalities do too. Which is how do you leave a project after you're finished with the right resources and tools to deal with challenges? At Union Station... There are, I think this is right, I think there's 12 metropolitan districts. Mm. Um, Of those, each has a maintenance district fee that provides capital to deal with problems. And then, of course, you have RTD operating the train station. And so when all of these challenges came up, which, again, we just shut down, and then six months later, when we really hadn't reopened yet, we still had, we, we had these problems. So fortunately there, there was a mechanism by which people could come together. And so the building owners, the condominium owners, the retailers who are there, RTD, the um, residents of the apartment buildings who can often be overlooked because they don't own. Sure. But um, those folks too got engaged. And that group of people started meeting actually weekly, got incredible support and engagement from the um, police chief, which is a, you know obviously crucial uh, thing to have happen. And that group got, got on it up to and including kind of learning some stuff about the public space that we've built, which we mm-hmm. hadn't gotten right and which is going to be improved by next spring, I hope. So lots of efforts were made there. Um, there were definitely some unfortunate and sad things that happened in the interim for sure. Can you talk about those improvements you mentioned at all? Um, yeah, the, the work is being done all along the 17th Street Promenade today. Yep. That is a metropolitan district, and they do have some funding, and so they're making changes to the way the, the, the parkland works. We, we had, in essence, created just seating. And what what we know and what I've learned in a lot of public work, uh, public space work, is 
seating's great. Seating's really important, but public spaces need to be programmed. And mm -hmm. we really hadn't put together a programming component. And so those guys have gone back. They're looking at it more holistically. You can see the success where there is programming in place, which is the same fundamentally group of people on the Lodo side of Union Station, where those problems never really emerged. Sure. And and there's the fountain. Fountains are amazing. Um, what they do, they, they make spaces smaller without making them smaller. They get people wet, you know, <laughs> which is good. Um, and the grove of trees over on the other side and the retail facing out. And then there's good programming there. So that that's the thing we kind of learned on the backside. I think we've done a good job of, of navigating through it. One, one thing I will say, which is really interesting, is obviously during COVID, RTD was just empty. Mm -hmm. uh, people weren't going to work. Uh, people then, once they started going to work again, didn't feel safe, mostly because they were afraid of getting COVID. And so RTD in particular faced a lot of challenges, revenue challenges that they, you know, they, they don't get a ton of their revenue from the fare box, but what they were getting and they were no longer getting. And then there's a whole group of people who were supposed to be in the space who were missing. Right. And so that was definitely a challenge. That generally is returning. Uh, RTD is not all the way to full capacity, but the union station lines are super popular. I think it's interesting the differences just on two sides of the same building. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. That you'll learn from one side of right. the building to apply to the other. But I do want to say it's really important to me. You can go there today. There, there, There's rough, like right now while we're talking, there's roughly 60 people in line to get us to get their sandwich at Whole Foods or okay. a door call. And Sweet Greens has got a line wrapped all the way into the back of the building and the doors are open on Cafe Lonscop. So it it is no longer a hellhole. <laughs> My last question here before we jump into some student ones. On East West website, the company says we start by thinking big and then we go even bigger. How has that manifested itself in one of your projects? What could be bigger than big? <laughs> you know, you keep doing this to me. I saw that one. I was like, we need to take that down. No, I, what we mean by that, which it probably doesn't come across, is if, when we think big, we certainly for sure do not think bigger building, taller building, sure. bigger project. Sure. But we do like to push things. We we, we want to do things differently. And I think it's a little bit the, the character of the folks who work at East West Partners. We, we like creativity. We like changing um, things. So I think that's part of it. We're always trying to say, okay, how can we do even more? Um, and it, listen, we can't always do everything that we want to do, um, but we're trying. So Cirque is a new hotel that we're um, developing in Snowmass. And we really have thought completely differently about how to do that hotel. Now, real estate's a huge business, right? Biggest business in the world. Sure. So we're stealing ideas from hotels elsewhere. Montage, Chileno, or sorry, O'Bear's Chileno Bay is an example. So we're stealing ideas, but that project is very much um, a different way to do a condominium hotel where we focused first on the condominium experience and the hotel experience second. And that is different. And that's an idea of saying, okay, we're going to do this thing, which has been done before, but we're going to really try to do it differently. Um, so we really do, we take a big idea and then we try to make it better. might be a better way to say it. Great. Uh, we'll now shift to some questions submitted by both undergraduate and graduate students at Daniels. Uh, we'll include one or two in the podcast that you're listening to, uh, but we'll have a couple more in our show notes for listener, listeners to check out. Uh, let's get into the first one. Hey, Chris. My name is Cheryl, and I'm a first-year student in the Reby Master's Program at the University of Denver. These days of post-COVID, retaining great employees seem to be a constant challenge. What would be your number one suggestion you would give to your directors in maintaining trust and loyalty from your employees? Yeah, I think that's really a fun question. Um, 
I'm actually not sure there's one thing. Um, but I would say maybe I could break it down to three. I mean, I'd say first and foremost, incredible. It's incredibly important to be like super transparent with your team. Um, just yesterday, our CFO Jay Lambiot walked our entire th- company through our financials, and that's the kind of transparency that I mean. Mm. Um, I think that uh, transparency about their performance, how can you be better, and and how are you doing well, oftentimes forgotten. Yeah. Um, don't take getting the work done and be like, oh well, I, I sure you were supposed to. That's what we said we were going <laughs> to do. Like it's still an accomplishment, right? right? We 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 have this problem with the Broncos. Like if they don't score a touchdown <laughs> on every drive, we boo them and. You know, and then when they score, we're kind of like, yeah, whatever, should score. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think there's – I am a Broncos fan. So I think that's – I think transparency, I think, uh, is is really important. Um, I do think that a um, workplace that really values collaboration um, is a huge deal. So folks who are working in a company are not taskmasters but are part of the decision-making, um, lead projects on their own. Um, and are given room to work is a really, really big deal. Um, I would say third, I do think this is a big deal. It, it, great folks want to work at companies who are doing great things. Yep. And so I think that helps a lot. Um, it would be a really big one. And then it doesn't hurt to pay well. Sure. Great. Uh, let's jump into our second student question. Hello, Chris. My name is Evan, and I'm a sophomore majoring in real estate in the built environment. My question for you is what are some of the top sustainability and innovative design trends you are seeing today? Thank you. Um, you know, there's a few. Uh, there's there's nothing faster moving than sustainability. Uh, it's unbelievable to me, actually. I, when East West first started working on sustainable issues was in Tahoe, at, um, North Start Lake Tahoe. And, and at the time, we really didn't even know what we were doing. We, we had a guy who worked in that, and we would do things like build walls out of blue jean insulation. Pretty cool idea, actually. Yeah. But um, so, there, there, you know, we, I've been lucky enough to kind of watch that that trend grow. You know, today there are a few things. Um, I think the first is it, it, we really break it down into three ways to think about sustainability. So the, so the first, which we've done a pretty good job across the, across the spectrum of, is just thinking about how to use a le- less electricity in a space. So we've kind of already won that fight. So you can't even buy an incandescent light bulb that will light up a garage anymore. So we've done that stuff. Elevators have gotten better. Refrigerators and Energy Star, all those things. We've done a really good job on that front. So that's sort of the operating part. The second is what is the source of your electricity? East West is super focused on this. Uh, It is our stated commitment to not build any building that's not net zero operating. Super complicated issue. Kind of lives where LEED did 10 years ago. Sure. Um, in that, what does it mean to be net zero? Is that do you have all renewable energy sources in your project? Are you buying credits? You know, what is your utility doing, et cetera? The, the, the whole argument against the Tesla in Montana because all the fuel comes from natural gas. Right. And then the third, and this may be where the most innovation is happening, is, is in the embedded carbon in the building. If you remember, 50% of carbon use in a project is in the construction of the project. And so there are fun things that at first sound really great. CLT, we're doing a few CLT buildings, which is awesome technology. And for those who don't know, cross-laminated timber, so you're using a renewable resource to build your building. But if you're bringing the um, timber from northeast Canada to Albuquerque, maybe it's not that good. Sure. And so – Around those lines, and you can actually um, – the, the folks at Lendlease are really getting good at this. There's a whole process of actually considering procurement and considering your embedded carbon at the same time. 
it's new. It's a trend. We're at the beginning of it. There's not a perfect standard. But you can kind of look at something and say, well, we could do drywall or excuse me, we could do uh, board applied stucco or we could do brick. And the cost is going to be generally the same. So what is the what is the embedded carbon in that? And if you're here and that um, brick is coming from somewhere with clay, which is nowhere near here, that's probably more embedded carbon than if you're using a board applied stucco, but you know you're getting the stucco material off of I-70. So that, that that's probably the place where the most innovation is going on. I want to say, and I, I do mean this, the two other things, if you don't mind, as long as you got a microphone in, in front of me. Go the, ahead. So the first is like, this is a thing that real estate can do. Um, uh, the built environment is responsible for a massive percentage of, of um, global warming. And, and global warming is a massive threat. We're, we're not confused about that, I don't think, in any way anymore. And so um, we actually have a very rare opportunity to have a direct impact in the work that we do. And that, that is rare. It is very rare that you can take on a massive international issue and actually be able to do something about it. So I think that's a, I think that's a really a big thing. I also think there's a tendency to think it costs more. Mm. Um, we did our net zero building in, in um, Stomass called Electric Pass Lodge, and we call it EPL for short. And the EPL, um, by the time we got done figuring out the systems and putting in the phase change material and triple pane windows and earth tubes and all these things that have to cost a fortune, yeah. we actually found out it cost a little less. And when we did the 1916th Street building, which is DeVita headquarters, the way that worked out is they actually got to decide gold or platinum in the building, and they said, we want platinum, and the increase in cost was 2.5%. Mm. So it, it, it doesn't have to be some sort of, I either build a Tesla and, and, it doesn't, and, th and that's it. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff in between, and it's, it's really figured out at the margins. We're on to our last uh, closing question here. Uh, as a voice of experience, what's something you'd like to pass on to our listeners? Oh, I hate being a voice of experience. <laughs> um, you know, I I, uh, I don't know, create terrific places. I, I mean, the folks that I think, I'm assuming the people who are listening to this are, are interested in real estate development kind of from an uh, academic point of view and, and then moving on to their careers. And, you know, do good work. It, it, it's so much more valuable than just about anything else. I, 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 um, I love Twitter. I've got ADHD. I don't really know. I shouldn't say that because it's kind of rude to people actually do, but I got a really short attention span. So Twitter's sort of perfect for me. And, and, um, there's a RE Twitter it's full of real estate people, but it's mostly, as far as I can tell, bros talking about how to cold call people about, um, self storage and how they set up their yields and what they did to get the loan and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like, don't do that. Like, just don't do it. We don't need another self-storage unit ever. And yes, you'll make money. And I'm sure it's important. But that amount of work could be put into lots of great things. And by the way, I will not accept, but it's a nice self-storage. No, it doesn't matter. It's self-storage. <laughs> and no, I, I would say do great work. Great. Well, that was Chris Frampton, CEO of East West Partners, joining us on this edition of the VOE podcast from the Daniels College of Business. Chris, thank you so much for your time and your insightful advice. Thanks for having me. For more on this episode, including additional details on East-West progress at Cherry Creek West, and more insight from that Downtown Denver Partnership Report, be sure to check out our show notes. You can find those and more at daniels.du.edu slash VOE podcast. And if that wasn't enticing enough, Chris answered two additional student questions. 
on how he spurned a career in journalism to join the family development business and what sustainability practices he thinks will become commonplace in future projects. The VOE podcast is an extension of Voices of Experience, the signature speaker series at the Daniels College of Business, sponsored by U.S. Bank. Patrick Orr and Chloe Smith are our sound engineers. Alumnus Joshua Metzl wrote our theme. And I'm Nick Greenhelsch. Until next time, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. Thank you.